Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian Literature for the Inebriated. I'm Matt Garasimovich, PhD student in Russian Lit. This week, digitally detoxing myself by buying myself a typewriter and saying that this will improve my workflow. I'm not sure how, but we're going to find out. (laughs) (laughs) It'll improve your workflow when you literally can't make a typo on whatever you're about to turn in. It's high stakes, baby. (laughs) That's that's how we want it. It's high stakes, no reward. (laughs) Well, that's how you know you're doing it for the love of the game. Mm Mm-hmm. And I am Cameron Lalana, and uh, my girlfriend and I are going to go see the Mountain Goats perform in October or November. I want to say October. So we've decided to listen to every one of the albums of the Mountain Goats, one album per week, and then having a discussion section. Uh, uh, discussion section, just a discussion. We're just talking about it. So <laughs> you are the Mountain Goats, TA. <laughs> I'm ready to enter my most annoying phase of life when I uh, finally have uh, conquered all there is to know about the Mountain Goats. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, I look forward to it. (laughs) But before we continue with the podcast, we just wanted to extend a quick thank you to our newest patron, Brenda. Brenda, thank you so much for helping us keep the show running. All right, on the show. This is a podcast for me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. Today, we're going to be talking Guerrilla Warfare, book four, part three of War and Peace. We're so close to being done, but we're not quite there. We're not quite there, and we're not quite done with the number of people in the story dying. No. Uh, and after all this, no, 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 no. Uh, after all this time you've invested in reading War and Peace, you probably want to make sure that you're getting the most out of your reading. That's why you need to head on over to patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy, where we're going to be posting a reading guide for each episode. That includes a quick commentary on major quotes and themes. It'll help you understand the book better. And hey, it's been... Five months. Jesus. It has been five months. If, if you've been spending five months on this or whatever, uh, some, is this episode 10 or 11, 10 or 11 hours on this? Hey, why not learn a little bit more about each episode? But in case you're not that interested in Patreon, but you still want to help us out, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. But before we get into the reading today, Matt, I've got to ask you, what are you reading? Reading, excuse me. What are you <laughs> drinking today? I am drinking Not Your Father's Root Beer. Mm. It's root beer, but it's got alcohol in it. It has become fastly a guilty pleasure of mine. All right. Well, nothing wrong with a little little bit of alcoholic root beer or a lot of bit of alcoholic root beer. Yeah. What what do you got over there? I have. uh, I've got a stout, uh, typical. Uh, It's called an eight ball stout. Unclear to me if eight ball is the name of the beer or if eight ball is the type of beer it is, which I've never heard of that before, but it could be new from Lost Coast Brewery up in Eureka, California. And I should point out that it is Eureka, California, which is the good Eureka, uh, as opposed to Yreka, which is just Eureka, but spelled with a Y instead of an EU. I don't actually know if Yreka is pronounced Yreka, but that is how everyone that I have ever (laughs) met in California pronounces that town name because it's important to differentiate Yreka from Eureka because they're actually not that far apart. Anyway, I I am eternally mad about how towns in Northern California name themselves, but Mm -hmm. that's a different, that's a subject for a different podcast. For our next podcast. (laughs) Just Cameron yelling about different towns I've been to uh, in Northern California. Well, instead of towns, what do we have to get mad about today? And is it guerrilla warfare? (laughs) Guerrilla warfare, prisoner executions, I guess you can get mad about. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) this is the guerrilla warfare part. So I'm so excited about this. Last time I talked a little bit about how I was ready to talk about this part. But that's, uh, I I should say, part of my degree 
Uh, I know every time I describe my degree, it sounds like a different thing. And that's because my degree was very unfocused, uh, but focused <laughs> on studying warfare itself. And one of my favorite parts about studying this was studying irregular warfare or um, what's the word term for it? Um, asymmetrical warfare or God, there is an actual state to state dyadic warfare. Whatever. I'll let it in later, maybe. The degree is gone. It's done. Yeah. <laughs> I got to give my degree back at this point. <laughs> but um, studying uh, irregular or state on uh, non-state actor warfare is was my particular uh, favorite area of study because that is really the dominant form of warfare uh, for the last hundred years or so. So uh, that's something I've always been very interested in and really got into, and I'm ready to talk about it here. Let's do it. It was a good part. It was a good part. Um, so before we get into it, Matt, is there anything you wanted to to lead in with? Yeah, it's not necessarily a super profound point, but this is the part of the book in which I kind of fell off last time. Like I was still reading mm. it, but I think there's something that changes and I'm not exactly sure where it does. I, I feel like Tolstoy loses track of his own story and it really is just him hammering home the points that he wanted to make sure you <laughs> didn't miss. <laughs> right well yeah we're gonna be hitting on the classics of historians don't understand history mm -hmm. militaries don't really run by the way their leaders want them to run and also history is driven by an x factor which we don't tend to study and kind of new for this part which is jesus christ wouldn't have wanted this which i feel like comes <laughs> a little out of left field <laughs> the the strong christian morality and i use that very intentionally i i read your notes so i know that this is something that, that's on your mind too but towards the end where he's like this is what the lord our god has deigned and that's how we know that this is right does come as you say a little out of left field yeah you can see why he goes through i don't know like 30 or 40 more years of spiritual crisis after writing this <laughs> yeah right so this part is going to be mostly focusing on the characters you care. I know the most about Denisov, Dolokhov, and Petya Rostov. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so just in case you're, you're wondering, we are now uh, 1,100 pages into a book, and we are focusing on background characters. <laughs> so this is some classic Tolstoy. You got the B cast out there. <laughs> if this was anyone but Tolstoy, I would definitely not let this slide, but he's, he's built up some goodwill at this point. But anywho, so let's talk about part three. This part is pretty heavy on Tolstoy philosophizing about history, so this is going to be a pretty short uh, summary section. To Just to say, he opens up on about two parts of talking about the laws of history, which we've talked about quite a lot before, so I'm not going to go over what he says. But he does apply them specifically into uh, the science, quote-unquote, of warfare. Now, this is pretty important because... Uh, the modern science of warfare is a diffuse su subject. L let me say that there are multiple strands which don't necessarily intersect that much. There is the sort of study of warfare which you would get in a military college, uh, which is something that I, I will say I'm not that familiar with, and it, it derives from roughly this era of warfare, um, of course, with, with addendums and additions and revisions from many later eras. But like this is the era of warfare when the idea of wars, uh, laws of war are laid down, where you start getting the, you know, your Frederick the Greats, your obviously your Napoleons, um, your sort of ideas of military rightness, which carries forward 
And I'm not going to say that those eras are all that relevant to today, but they are relevant in the sense that Freud is still relevant to modern psychology uh, in which that you don't necessarily apply those concepts on a day-to-day basis, but you know, it led to a, a chain reaction, people reacting positively or negatively to those beliefs, uh, which you know continues on through time until you get to a modern study. That is mostly separate from what I will call the academic study of warfare, which is on the whole much more statistical and data-based than it is philosophy-based, as is the military study of warfare. And the point I'm trying to make here is that what Tolstoy is talking about when he, he talks about historians in this part, he's specifically, for the most part, talking about these these writers and these people who are laying down these ideas of warfare as, oh, this is correct warfare, which leads into, you know, I think most notably, these notions of warfare lead especially into uh, World War One later on, which uh, if you are, if you know anything about World War One. A historical battle doctrine applied to uh, the advent of the machine gun did not work out super well for anyone in the European theater. But I say all this uh, to cover the fact that this is just Tolstoy going in on this sort of military side study of warfare, arguing that these these ideas of science is a misapplication of the term. Uh, and in fact, he says... In, in one of his uh, Tolstoy's side points, which are as more correct than maybe even he knew, he says the science of warfare doesn't mean anything because, well, what about guerrilla warfare, which is always successful in the face of, uh, you know, these, this idea of science, of, of modern military application of warfare, which perhaps grew out of uh, Tolstoy's own experience in, in Chechnya, which was a sort of a warfare between um state military and a non-state military, a non-state actor, as you might say, and was a guerrilla warfare and, and did end in, despite a great number of victories, individual battles won on the Russian military side and overall loss in the conflict, uh, which has made tuned pretty true to today. <laughs> sure. This is, Tolstoy is pretty much correct on military, military uh, science historicism here in which uh, guerrilla warfare is never good, never successful, in a sense, but it always kind of wins. <laughs> yeah, I feel like he also gets kind of into the ethics of military warfare, because remember, there was mm-hmm. that, that quote that gets taken out of context uh, all the time, which was something to the effect of, well, if, <laughs> I can't remember exactly what it was, but, you know, if everybody goes to war, then there would be no war, right? Or if everybody acted truly according to their own convictions, then there would be no war, um, and Tolstoy has this this kind of give and take with the detention on this in this particular chapter on what it means to be, you know, subjugated, right? You know, are you mm-hmm. subjugated because your military loses, or are you subjugated because you know your <laughs> your your band of of fighters has lost? And in some ways, it almost makes it seem like guerrilla warfare is actually more ethical. Which is kind of interesting. I've been ruminating on this. Yeah, I, I, I want to come back to that once we're done with this. But yeah, it's really interesting the way that it works itself out. This is yeah. This is I think to, to me one of the most interesting parts of this story. But that's just the first few chapters. Following that, we we join the top-down view of the war, where the French are continuing their warfare at this point. You know, after these former battles, after leaving Moscow, after Borodina, they are essentially believing they're they're trying to retreat from the imperial russian territory and they are just pulling their prisoners out they're getting out they 
care nothing for the so-called laws of warfare, as Tolstoy puts it. And they are, the army itself is disintegrating down to the individual. So these laws of history, which Tolstoy has harped on, it becomes more apparent, as he would have you believe. And as a side point, because uh, Kutuzov, at this point, for the most part, does not want the actual military to engage in, in actions against this retreating French military, because as Tolstoy will say time and time again, why on earth would you bother sending troops into a battle to die against an enemy that's already retreating, which is what you wanted? Although there are some actions which, which take place, I think we covered in the last part. Most of the warfare ha- at this point is happening in uh, guerrilla warfare against, um, well, small individual units carrying on a, a warfare against these retreating French forces. Uh, and one of those units we, we join is actually being run by our friend Denisov. Uh, if you don't recall Denisov super well, he's the one who speaks with uh, a lisp isn't the correct word. He's the one who replaces R's with W's and sounds a little childlike. He's the one who tried to marry Natasha when she was 13. Lest we forget. Yeah, lest we forget. Uh, but is now leading this, this group of partisans who are attacking the French. One rainy morning, an officer comes up to give them some orders. And after reading those orders, Denisov realizes, wait. You're Rostov, not Nikolai, as you might be expecting, but Petya Rostov, who joined the story way far back many years ago as a child who is now a youth of, um, I believe, not quite 20, but still fairly young, who has joined the military against the the wishes of his parents and is now delivering orders. Um, And Petya is so taken in with these, these partisans who are such, you know, gruff kind of the, the sort of men he imagines are the ones he wants to be. He's very taken with them, and he joins them despite his, his superior officer commanding him to return immediately afterwards because uh, his commanding officer knows that Petya, much like his older brother, has kind of a hot head and is willing to rush right into battle if it seems glorious. That leads them into a larger series of events where they are um, recon- reconnoitering a French camp, uh, which previously they'd sent in someone to go to kidnap some people, that didn't quite work out. They find that person. Uh, they take him back home, Tijon, and they realize that uh, Tijon had, had actually found someone, but had uh, actually killed that person and went back to look back from look for more soldiers, which had led to his capture, thus leading to the escape as as they're reconnoitering. Which I only bring up because that is something that Petya will reflect upon: uh, the fact that Tijon, this man who is so funny, so genial, had you know executed someone in cold blood for not being the right <laughs> capture. Haha, <laughs> oops. Haha, <laughs> oops. This is this is the part of warfare where it's getting really brutal. I mean, you know, warfare itself is brutal enough, but I guess there's something we said about the sort of brutality of the heat of passion of everyone shooting each other, and then there's something we said about the brutality of you're not the right person for information, so I guess I'm going to cut your throat in this dark forest. Also, I do think that this is the first time that Petya has consciously thought that someone could die in war and seen what that right. looks like. Because he's really young. He's Yeah, he's up to this point, Petya has only existed in the novel as a child. This is the first time we've seen Petya as, I hesitate to say an adult because he's not an adult, but one who plays at such. Well, he's seen as an adult and thus able to participate in the war. But clearly what Tolstoy is showing us is that he's really not emotionally developed to the point that he should be given a gun <laughs> and sent off to kill people. Right, yeah. Uh, Tolstoy says uh, people who are just turned 18 should not be ready to be uh, uh, mobilized as no, soldiers. No, 
Yeah. So as as Petya is there, Dolkov comes in and up and uh, has his own mission. Dolkov at this point is now the ideal soldier. It's mentioned he's dressed up exactly as he should be. I believe the last time we saw Dolkov, I think we were in Voronezh. I think. Before that, he was off on his Persian adventure. Dalakhov by far has the most interesting story through this entire book, which is entirely an implication, which I appreciate. It's very funny to me. Mm-hmm. But Dalakhov basically says, I'm going to go reconnoiter the French camp by infiltrating. And Petya insists against Denisov's wishes. Uh, this isn't exactly said, but Denisov remembers Petya. He remembers him as a child for the most part. Uh, for probably because Denisov tried to marry Petya's sister when she was a child, but he has this sort of, it's not said, but sort of paternal like need to protect Petya and initially shoots him down, but Dolkhov eventually talks them into letting Petya go. They go off and do their reconnoitering. They enter the French camp, both pretending to be French officers because they are both fluent French speakers, gain a little bit of information, come back and feed that back. Uh, and Petya, for his part, after this whole event, which which is so terrifying to him that he is basically silent the entire way through, comes back. Denisov has stayed up this entire night waiting for Petya and is finally able to fall asleep when Petya is back. Petya wanders out into this camp of partisans who are camping in the forest and sees not the real world. He does not see the hard reality of what they're facing, which is an incredibly brutal, one of the most brutal wars you could imagine. He sees, because he's still essentially a child, a fantasy land. He sees not the fires of soldiers, uh, you know, trying to stay warm through the night. He sees, you know, some kind of some kind of fantasy thing, something much grander. Uh, as he asks a Cossack to sharpen his sword, he falls asleep to this idea of grandeur in the night and imagines a a symphony which he controls, which carries through to till the next day, in which they decide to attack. The attack goes fairly well. With the exception that Petya, who rushes out ahead of the the forces they have, ends up uh, shot in the head and falls off his horse and dies without much uh, fanfare. Well, the fanfare is them shouting back and forth to each other, done for, done for. That's it. <laughs> as as Dalhav announces to, to Denisov, who then, you know, white-facedly goes to collect uh, Petya's body. Uh, and... Among once they they've attacked this French camp, which is successful, but on the partisans' part, they free many uh, Russian prisoners. Many they free about a hundred or less than a hundred uh, Russian prisoners, and I use Russian loosely uh, to mean the, the affiliated with the Imperial Russian Empire. Not all of them are ethnic Russians. Uh, some of them are German soldiers, or you know many others who are involved in this conflict. But uh, among that group is Pierre. At this point, we jump back to Pierre's experience of this war, which has been pretty much uh, pretty bad. It's been, not been great as they've been marching back out out of the Imperial Russian Empire. It has been tough. It has been uh, if you are sick, if you are slow, if you fall behind the others, you are shot. You die. You die by hunger. You die by cold. Uh, you die by having nothing but horse meat and saltpeter to eat. But Pierre, for his part, has sort of attained a... Uh, a sort of evenness, I will say, about it. He discovers some sort of truths about the world. Uh, I'm going to opine later on more about the philosophical implications about this. 
despite what he says, it really just feels like a precursor to PTSD in that he stops caring and stops <laughs> noticing how many people are dying around him. You can philosophize all you want. That is, a, I feel like, just a trauma response. But, hey, who am I to judge? I'm just a guy. Um, among the people who die are his friend Karatayev, who we talked about last time in relation to wisdom. And this time, and in this point, Karatayev, uh, one day very tiredly sits down in a tree and is unable to carry on and is shot by uh, French soldiers. But before Pierre is really able to come to terms with this, and I don't say that as it happens soon after, but Pierre is just, his mind does not accept the idea that Karatayev is dead for at least a day, maybe more. The That is when we catch up with the, the forces of Denisov uh, attacking the camp and freeing the Russian uh, prisoners. Pierre has has some has some dreams, which we'll talk about later, uh, and then the prisoners are freed, and we carry forward with not so much an actual examination of what follow, happens following the battle, but Tolstoy again going on about historians reviewing this period of history and his problems with how they have categorized uh, greatness, specifically this uh, idea of which is now commonly referred to as great man theory of history, and especially historians talking about the the Russian side of the uh, equation for how, how this went down, which we'll also talk about more. But that's it's probably the shortest summary we've done so far because there it really is not a lot of story here, but there is a lot of ideas here, uh, albeit some ideas which have been put forth before, but also a lot of, I would say, not entirely new, but interestingly different ideas Tolstoy's putting forth. But is there anywhere you want to start in particular? I feel like you were really excited to talk about guerrilla warfare and i would be a bad co-host if i didn't give you a bit of a lead-in thank you well i i I am really excited to talk about guerrilla warfare because so he talks specifically tolstoy in in chapter two gets into the science of warfare and this is gets more into the I i will say this is sort of an intersection between the academic and the military study of warfare because the military study military study of warfare really is engaging with how do you win wars? And the academic side of the study of, of warfare really engages more with, it's it's not so much how do you win wars, but it's more so how do you predict war? What are the circumstances under which you can expect war to break out? What are the circumstances under which you can expect nationalist groups to militarize? What are the circumstances under which you might reliably see peace agreements to to hold, to be to become stable, uh, become durable, as, as the term is? But the, he, he gets into an interesting intersection between the two fields here in which he he says and this is a very i will say 19th century idea of warfare in in that he critiques the study of warfare because the idea is larger formations are going to beat smaller formations that's the basic building block that was the building block in maybe in the 19th century it's not so much now but that's its own thing let's let's engage with him at his own time uh, and he says okay so it's not just about people because it's also about morale to some degree how much do they want to fight but it's also how can you much how can you say that what causes success in warfare is this specifically i have no evidence in front of me which can point to this specifically being it Uh, so instead this this factor which causes success in warfare i will call factor x and it's not anything we've known or at least even if it is one of these things we've known to be a successful factor in warfare uh, we can't we don't have evidence for it being the reliable factor x which causes victory so what is victory caused by it's caused by factor x and he argues in short that it's a battlefield factor 
Uh, and it's, or, sorry, excuse me. He argues that while some argue that X is a battlefield factor and battlefield factor includes things like weather, troops, wh whatever, he argues that it's really X is an army spirit. And he comes up with a sort of equation for warfare. And the math itself doesn't really matter. But what he says is that it, it doesn't, by... But it, it sure does matter that he makes you read a mathematical equation when you're like, <laughs> oh, good, I'm almost done with the book. Boom! Just... <laughs> left hook left hook you're 1100 pages in time to start <laughs> engaging with mathematics <laughs> the thing that everybody loves right so yeah. so it comes with this equation of warfare uh and the basic idea is that we i you know Tolstoy says i think i think x is like an army spirit but however if we instead of coming to a, a definite conclusion of what this factor x is what if we instead start comparing warfare and use this math formula I have created to try to derive principles to compare these knowns and unknowns to uh, start analyzing the unknowns. And uh, he says, only then, quote, expressing known historic facts by equations and comparing the relative significance of this factor, can we hope to define the unknown? Um, and I think that's interesting because, uh, as I mentioned several times before, one of my favorite things about Tolstoy is that he just dips his toes into uh, fields that will not exist for like 10, 20, or 100 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in what is to be done, he dips his toes into Marxist or socialist ideas. He's dipped his toes into what you might call Hannah Rent's ideas of the banality of evil, whatever you think of that. Uh, and here he's dipping his toes into the science of warfare, the study of warfare for, for ideas that won't become broadly relevant until much, much later down the line. Uh, and although his ideas are not very complex, very developed, or, you know, they, they've been thoroughly surpassed by modern thought on the idea. I think it's, it's just so interesting that he just dips his toes into something that is a very basic idea of, of thought that will not be thoroughly developed for, for, for quite a while by other people. Just, it's, it's enjoyable. And it's, uh, uh, it's interesting that he is specifically addressing this, this place of guerrilla warfare at this time, uh, especially from his position. And addressing it as, as we talked about, as one which is it tends to be successful, which not every guerrilla war is successful, and guerrilla warfare is a deeply destructive form of warfare, but it is, by and large, the dominant form of warfare we see today, and it, if a guerrilla fights a state, the guerrilla, the, well, I will say, uh, the guerrilla, maybe is more accurately described as a form of warfare, the, the non-state actor engaging in guerrilla war does tend to win so he's he pretty much called it on that one <laughs> well he lays out this factor too which is again going back to this quote which i wish i had written down because it is important when he's earlier talking about how basically we're only able to go to war because it is under this facade of hmm. having almost a sort of like gentleman's war which is basically what's depicted in the book but so what happens when you get dolohov versus like nikolai rostov who's going to be, you know, running away and throwing his weapon into the bushes. Meanwhile, you have Dalhov, who's like a patented psychopath. Um, <laughs> you get a group of them together. I mean, five of them could have taken down Napoleon, probably. <laughs> right. I think, well, I don't know if this is the exact quote you're talking about, but towards the very beginning of this part, uh, he says this, the period of this campaign says, it proved that not, that the force which decides the fate of peoples lies not in conquerors, not even in armies, in battles, but some, in something else. In, he's leading up to his factor X there, but also the people, the individuals, the psychotic Dolokhovs who yeah, are yeah. to do whatever. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that it actually, I think it just shows that Tolstoy was really well read and kind of well in tune with his own time because I think what you are seeing actually is a <laughs> like a continuation of where Russia was at this time, which was heavily influenced by German philosophy and where you see like these academic disciplines and where you see the relationship between uh, those and what kind of what we have now, it's really only because we also are extremely influenced by German philosophy. Uh, so the idea of the West is built on that. And so Tolstoy is critiquing a fundamental idea of German philosophy, right? And so I think that that's why you can see, oh, he actually kind of almost precedes some of these things that we think of now as givens. And, oh, wait, actually, he had foreseen that this might be an issue, uh, the fact that we calculate everything, uh, right, tried, trying to get down to the most minuscule level. But we're stuck because there's something that we can't predict. There's something that cannot be reduced to math. And, yes, it is a provocative and good point. But also, yes, he does say it so many, so many, so many times. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I think that's also why... I know it, you said you you kind of fell off of this part. I feel like I'm almost re-energized by this part because when he's talking about warfare in this part, he's talking about a departure from rules of warfare. And one of the ways he expresses that is this line. After the burning of Smolensk, a war began which did not follow any previous traditions of war. The burning of, burning of towns and villages, the retreats after battles, the blow dealt at Borodina and the, and the renewed retreat the burning of Moscow, the capture of marauders, the seizure of transports, and the guerrilla war were all departures from the rules. Now, this is, uh, on one level, if you know anything about colonial war in the 1800s and late, in, in, uh, the late 1700s, you know, this is not all that new. Uh, however, uh, um, this is perhaps new in its infliction within the European continent. Uh, even that's not really true. That's, that's true within it, the perspective of empire, I guess I'll say. Uh, but that's why I started getting energized in this because it starts to engage with this form of warfare, which at this point has largely been relegated to uh, the peripheries of empire. Um, this, like the burnings of town and villages, retreats after battles. And that's why I, I'm, I'm energized because he's getting into talking about how the science of warfare, up to this point, he's been trying to demonstrate it's not real, it's fake, it's just a, an idea we all hold up. But now when you get into the fact that this warfare, which is not driven by these so-called great men, you know, this warfare driven by these so-called great men, the Tsar, the, the the Napoleons, they have these false rules, this idea, but when it starts to be driven by individuals like Denisov carrying on this partisan warfare, it takes on an entirely separate element, which is much more successful uh, to Dolstoy, to, Dolstoy's, Tolstoy's uh, perspective, maybe not because it's 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 necessarily uh, away from these so-called great men, but because it's a, a fight of the people to a degree. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's why it starts to be interesting to me. That starts, I guess it, it renews a sort of energy for it because we get start getting to discussions of, as he's talked about, his, his interest is in history driven by people and partisan warfare is like the, in terms of studying warfare, it, 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 this is the exact idea he's talking about. This is a warfare which can only be carried on by the people. Partisan warfare can only be notable, be successful, if it is a genuine will of a, a, a coherent group of people. Maybe not connected, but, you know, coherent one form or another. So 
that that's what makes it interesting to me. It doesn't have that sort of falsehood of this imperial warfare, which has these Napoleons who give orders which aren't necessarily followed, but are just responded, the, the realities are responded to. Yeah, that's a good point. It's also funnier, I think. Yeah. Pretending to be French and just going in being mean enough <laughs> that they let you in. Right. And then just walking away because you were really mean. Yeah. Yeah. It's much bloodier. Um, I will I will say this is also a very cold-blooded part of the book. The fact that these part, group of partisans, they capture French soldiers. They have among them, they have a French drummer boy who most of them treat not badly, but just like like a joke. Uh, and Petia, who is the only among, one among them who is not a partisan, who is still holds these ideas of how you treat people, feels bad for him he's like he comes into this camp he starts giving all these partisans oh take my flint take my knife take my the raisins i don't need it i've got i've got so much of these and he looks up to these guys but then he also thinks of the prisoners and he thinks he's worried about being seen as less than less than manly less than adult because he's worried about the prisoners but he wants to go make sure that this french drummer boy is fed which is not necessarily something that this group of people who he seems opposed to but uh, this is a worry he has and you know, in many other perspectives, uh, you know, when Dalchov comes in and uh, says, oh, yeah, let me take Petya because he, he, he speaks French, uh, Denisov tries to block him, and Dalchov kind of makes fun of, of, of Denisov's, like, oh, what do you care about life now? Every time you send out 100 prisoners back to camp, 30 make it, and you say that that, that, that death's not on your back because they didn't die in your care. If you knowingly send these group of people out of which you know, most of them are going to die. It's really quite hypocritical for you to start caring about lives now. And Tijuan executing this unknown French soldier in the forest, which, uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, Petio feels uncomfortable around. This is, it, it is a realer war in a way. It is one that's genuinely driven by the individual desires of these people to, to make, see their land free from these, these foreigners it's also a dirtier war. It's a darker war by far. And I think that's what makes it interesting to me. We're really getting into these, like, a real moral discussion between Denisov and Dolokhov, between Denisov being trying to maintain some sort of moral standard, which you might recognize, and Dolokhov coming in saying, Really? You care about that moral standard? Just because these dozens of people die when they're not under your care, even though that, that was a potentially foreseeable outcome, but then also using that sort of moral relativism and i'm going to use this term very specifically because uh that is the underlying point that tolstoy is trying to make here that but that we should have some sort of moral standard which maintains for everyone uh, this sort of moral relativism for dolokhov of i don't care about you necessarily killing these prisoners but i care about you pretending like you've still maintained some sort of moral high ground so i am not gonna pretend like i have that high ground and therefore i'm just gonna do the worst things <laughs> and not care about it yeah, it's not something to emulate, I don't think. Well, it's definitely an example of how you can kind of twist it to sort of make it seem like you're in the right. Yeah. And it is kind of a cry for a sort of fixed moral standard, I think, which he does give at the end of the book or the end of this part. Yeah, this is, I, I, would, I would argue this is the whole point of this part is him arguing for an idea of moral consistency. Sure, sure. But before we get to the, this idea, because I think that really is the main idea, uh, let's talk about Pierre, because uh, that is the other half of this part. Yeah, yeah, he won't go away. What? He, he said, okay, I will say a philosophical journey that is the text of the book, and I think it is important to analyze the text of the book, 
It is important not to overlay too much of our own personal ideas onto it. Those can be engaged with, not as an overriding feature, I think. However, uh, I think Pierre's entire part of this book could also be attributed, if this were a real person, to just developing PTSD from an incredibly traumatic event. But there is, it, it should be engaged with on its own level. So let's talk about Pierre. Yeah, we can. Um, I don't think it is PTSD because I don't, I don't think Tolstoy's thought about it like that. And so he's not going to write on no. like that. <laughs> yeah, no, this is, this, I'm not, I'm not saying we should psychologize this, this view of the book. That is a thoroughly modern view. I think it should be engaged with, with its own time, its own perspective and its own piece. Uh, however, it is just hard not to, because Tolstoy is so good at writing these people as real people view it as like, yeah, you could see this philosophically. You could also see this as shell shock. <laughs> yeah, you could, but I'll argue for a different reading. Not because I think it's necessarily the one that would have truly happened in the situation, but just because I think it's probably more along the lines of Tolstoy's own philosophy, but I'm not, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not tied to it. You can argue with me. I'd, I'd be okay with it. So there is this strand that's continued from the last part where Pierre is talking about what it's like to be deprived of everything that you love and like in life and why that should make you feel happy. And there, there's this quote where the narrator says, While imprisoned in the shed, Pierre had learned, not with his intellect, but with his whole being, that man is created for happiness, that happiness lies within him, in the satisfaction of natural human needs, and that all unhappiness arises not from privation, but from excess. And so, it's kind of interesting, because I feel like the last part we were in, that we were talking about Pierre, he was really into this sort of ascetic kind of... Uh, you know, orientation towards the world after uh, he was kind of being taken prisoner in Moscow and deprived of basically everything. And Tolstoy kind of gives you a sort of mediating line here where he's not saying, you know, you don't need to be deprived really from everything to be happy ultimately, but unhappiness does come from having these sort of excesses. Mm. And it's... It's kind of an interesting middle ground, I think, that he ultimately strikes because it doesn't have that sort of strict asceticism that's really present in, for instance, the Orthodox tradition in the Desert Fathers, where you just go out, live in the desert, you got nothing but sand, and you're just praying for years straight. It's not quite that extreme. Uh, I, th I think it's a more sort of neutral, uh, attainable goal that he sets out. Um, so it's still ascetic, but it's not exactly extreme, I wouldn't say. Um, and then he does also here draw this distinction between his intellect and his whole being, which I would uh, need to check the translation on, but I'm guessing Tolstoy is drawing on this orthodox conception of understanding with your mind versus your heart, which are two different things in the theology. Um, there's right. Th this is what the book is getting at though. Ultimately, right? Like not everything is able to be understood with your mind, some things need to be understood through just what it feels like to experience them. And that's impossible for me to tell you what that feels like because, again, the whole point is you have to go and experience that. And that's something that's really big in War and Peace so far. And if you're wanting further reading, you could take a look at anything that Gary Saul Morrison has written on prosaics. Uh, if you're interested in how Tolstoy uses this kind of exact thesis to build a foundation of Literally everything that he writes, um, you know, you can check it out. That's what I got to say on that. 
Pierre. Pierre, yeah. Um, do you mind if I read a line here? Sure. To think about. And now, during the last three weeks of this march, he had learned still another new conciliatory truth, that nothing in the world is terrible. He had learned that as there is no condition in which man can be happy and entirely free, so there is no condition in which he need be unhappy and lack freedom. He learned that suffering and freedom have their limits, and those limits are very near together, that the person in a bed of roses with one crumpled petal suffered as keenly as he did now, sleeping on the damp earth with one side growing chilled while the other was warming. So I, I read that just because... Uh, not because I think you should take this as oh this is this is still uh, as Pierre's ultimate philosophy. It's still developing over time, and, and I'm sure it will develop more before the end of this book. But because he sort of comes to a, a form of acceptance, which to your point of the asceticism last time, uh, this isn't really specifically towards uh, happiness being uh, not really unrelated to the conditions in which you're in, but one which. Uh, sort of the the individual i guess the internal life means so much more than the external life uh which kind of comes to an, an apex in after uh Karatayev is shot for falling behind and uh, uh pierre falls into the stream not fully understanding that Karatayev is dead uh, in which he sees a globe uh, in a class taught by an old teacher of his in which the globe has many uh, drops each one kind of merging and fighting and trying to create its own space. Uh, and the teacher being like, yep, yeah, that's basically life. Every drop is trying to make its own space, but every other drop also prevents that drop from finding its own space. So the nature of life is spreading out, trying to occupy, uh, compressing, destroying, and sometimes merging. It, I don't know if I have a coherent point to draw from Pierre uh coming to this sort of not asceticism but acceptance of the life around him as the na the nature basically he's drawing at this point is just the point that Tolstoy has been trying to hammer into your head as the narrator this entire point <laughs> uh in which you know the, the sort of sense of ultimate freedom doesn't exist it can only exist within uh the boundaries under which other people allow it to be such by their own desires in their life and that creates conflict in life but it's kind of a, a tough point to swallow if you're going to accept this as advice from Tolstoy to you, which I don't know if you should personally, but it is definitely what he's saying, I think, which is that happiness is not what we think of as happiness. Happiness is not exhilaration. It is not the sort of adrenaline rush that you get when something good happens to you. It is not the sort of, you know, sugar high that you get from, you know, drinking, consuming, anything. It is simply being content in the moment internally. And that's a much different conception of happiness than we have. I think in some ways that that is a good thing that you can draw on to try to right, be more present in your everyday life. I'm not sure that that's advice that works for everyone in all situations. I think, you know, generally if your externals are taken care of, it's a little bit easier to be internally content than not. But, I mean, I don't know. I don't know anything, so don't listen to me. And, of course, he uses Pierre, who spent this time in as basically just a military prisoner, and he's like, oh, look, he can be happy, so can you. <laughs> right. Pierre is a better man than me. I could not be happy in this situation, I don't think. Yeah, I think most people would probably not, be, would not love uh, being in a situation under which they are exhausted, tired, 
freezing and if that affects their performance whatsoever they can be shot to death right 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 <laughs> right but the Kiritaev thing is interesting he gets a long long outro if you will right <laughs> he gets his whole uh Pierre not accepting his death before that that he also tells an entire story uh under which Pierre thinks about for a while the story is quite interesting hmm. i would say i don't know if you found it you know inspiring i found it i found it interesting i it's not inspiring <laughs> it's it is not inspiring uh so the story that Karatayev tells is is the story of a man who is falsely accused of a crime has his nose ripped off and is sent to a labor camp for 10 years for this crime they did not commit and while he's there he meets someone who realizes what's happened and feels so bad about it they admits to the crime uh and the czar finds out the czar commits a pardon for this guy but before he the pardon reaches him he dies in this camp which, I mean, his nose has already been ripped off and he's already been sent to a camp for 10 years, so I don't know if it was going to mean that much at that point, but hey. Mm-hmm. But what Pierre takes away from the story is less, as it is noted in the text, less the story itself and more the sort of mystical uh, belief imbued within Karatayev as he tells us this this sort of genuine belief, whatever that belief may be, that, that excitement to tell the story is what Pierre kind of takes away from it. Yeah. Belief in something, I guess. He sees this real wisdom in simplicity, which I personally do not. Not always, at least. He's, there's right the whole passage about, oh, he sees the world so differently now because he has these simple truths that he has now come to see. Uh, even though I would probably argue that there were a lot of other simple truths that he also used to see at other points in the book. Right. Well, what I, what I took away from it was that Pierre is getting down to brass tacks in the sense that uh, of all these these complex ways of seeing right and wrong, uh, it became less about this philosophical truth and more about just the kind of brass tacks of sure. what is what is right towards your fellow man, uh, which Tolstoy himself then harps upon in the following chapters when he he just he he takes historians to task, uh, at least historians of his own time, uh, and he he hates this idea of greatness. This this term that the historians have come up with the greatness in a person, which seems to exclude uh, standards of right or wrong for Tolstoy. And this idea of great man theory is something that certainly existed in, in history, as we've talked about before. It is something that I think modern historians are largely wary of. I should note it's something that is seen as uh, a past phenomenon, but. It was one that was pretty important for a great deal of time. So when Tulsa is harping on this idea of this relative good or bad, which is inf- infected of by the, the strain of calling someone great. If somebody becomes a great person, Napoleon, uh, you know, Frederick the Great, whatever, they become a if they become great historically, then anything can be can go for them. I think this is I think uh, a lot of what Pierre is getting at is the simplicity of belief really comes down to it's not my place to decide in a lot of ways what is right and what is wrong it is simply you know there is a there is a standard of right and wrong which is set by not that Tulsa would say it but set by the bible set by you know the christian god uh no he does say it here he says the standard of good and evil is given to us by christ right yeah he does say that uh, exactly (laughs) yes he sure does um which I don't think he did before, but it's it's interesting because I feel like what he's trying to get to is what is the core of Christianity and how can we cut away anything excess that we don't need? I think 
that right that's like how he's approaching it i'm not passing value judgment on that but yeah it's interesting though because that same kernel is just taken right over to crime and punishment like this is the core of crime and punishment right i saw your notes and i saw that you're comparing this to uh dostoevsky and i thought that was a really really interesting point that this sort of moral specificity is, is a feature of, of a lot of Dostoevsky's work, but not typically associated with Tolstoy. So that was very interesting. Yeah, and it's impossible to really know what was... Because, I mean, these are written like like right at the same exact time. And so it's impossible to know exactly whether these two authors are inspiring one another or if this is just a very common feature that arises because everyone's starting to now try to reconceptualize what it meant to be invaded by Napoleon. Um, but it, I mean, it's interesting. Napoleon's a super interesting figure that really has his, his sort of heyday in the, you know, Russian romantics and then it's transposed from there into, uh, Russian realism. It's, it's fascinating, but right. That same moral core is, is interesting. I don't know. I just, Again, this is a really great counterpoint to when people say, for instance, like Dostoevsky is more complex than Tolstoy. I don't know. There's some really challenging parts of War and Peace that I wouldn't exactly just say, yeah, it's easier to understand. <laughs> right. But to narrow in on what I think Tolstoy is kind of saying in this part, do you mind if I, I'm going to go for a bit of a longer quotation here. Um, this is when Tolstoy is is narrowing in on his hatred of historians as you do. Uh, and he writes, first of all, greatness, it seems, excludes the standards of right and wrong. For the great man, nothing is wrong. There is no atrocity for which a great man can be blamed. Uh, and that's followed by later on. And this says also has some French, which I've just gone ahead and, and broadly translated in English for ease of uh, ease of understanding uh, in an audio format. It is great, say the historians, and there no longer exists either good or evil, but only great and not great. Great is good and not great is bad. Great is the characteristic in their conception of some special animal called hero, and Napoleon escaping home in a warm fur coat and leaving to perish those who were not merely his comrades, but were, in his opinion, men he had brought there, feels that it is great and his soul is tranquil, and it occurs to no one that to admit a greatness is not commensurate with the standard of right or wrong uh, is merely to admit one's own nothingness and immeasurable meanness. So... He's not too much to analyze here. He he just goes deep on, on this idea of creating standards of, of good or bad, which are unrelated to standards of, um, you know, morally right, morally wrong, mm-hmm. being something that is uh, a great flaw in, in studying history because it allows, you know, evil people to be... Uh, in, in, in connection with Dostoevsky, right, we, we previously talked about in especially crime and punishment, you know, the, the kind of Dostoevsky makes fun of the idea of like, uh, especially in Raskolnikov is trying to create this. Uh, I think the term we use is like a kinder, more humane Napoleon as a term of derision. Um, and that, that's kind of is what this term great does is it, it creates a kinder more humane Napoleon in which humanity and, and, and kindness is irrelevant. Less so it's not like you're trying to create this individually kind, great person, but you're trying to create this person to whom kindness and these other features which are good or closer would have you hold are good are irrelevant too. And he wants you to believe that's a bad thing. And that's another overlap with, you know, kind of punishment, which 
uh, I think it, it, it's interesting this part specifically where where you start to see that that sort of Dostoevskian or language we'd recognize recognizes Dostoevskian become so prevalent. I, I think you're right. I think this part's kind of you know pulling back into it a little bit on the second read. I think it's okay. I think War and Peace <laughs> is still a good book. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's still okay. War and Peace, Tipsy Tolstoy says, it's okay. It's an okay <laughs> novel. <laughs> I'm not going to have to give it a bad review now on uh, Goodreads. Right. <laughs> Sorry, my Goodreads friends. <laughs> it's been saved for now. It's been saved for now. By our hand alone. <laughs> it's been spared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's that's all I had to say about it, really. I think I've been talking too much about my own thoughts on war. Uh, but is there anything else you want to address before we, we head out? No, I got to head out. I got to get to reading the next part. That's right. That's important. Mm-hmm. We, we got to get right into it because you're about to get into some other important stuff. So um, for now, this has been uh, episode. Uh, this has been part three of book four of War and Peace. And uh, before we totally wrap up, Matt, on a scale of, uh, uh, excuse me, on, uh, uh, I know we're not doing the scale of one else anymore, mm-hmm. but do you have any zingers you wanted to introduce to the crowd? Um, I feel like I could do a Yeltsin now that I'm drinking again. Okay. Do you want to, let's do a scale of one to Yeltsin. Now that I'm back on, back on the wagon. As back people, on the wagon. <laughs> people always say that when they're referring to drinking again. You're right. When they say you start drinking, they do say you get on the wagon. <laughs> that is the wagon. what they say. Yeah. No, probably, probably, probably six or seven. I'm feeling pretty good. Six or seven. Good. All right. Nice. Yeah. Nice, uh, nice, nice. You know, I did have a few of, uh, not your father's repairs prior to recording. So. Hell Yeah. Uh, you know, it helps to get through these tougher subjects. Sure. And also, I like them. That's, so. that's the other big thing. That's the other <laughs> important thing. How about you? I am probably a, a five Boo. at this point. So, I, I mean, you could probably guess that by how uh, how much I've kind of wandered on and off the book itself just to talk about my own particular interest in the study of warfare. But well, That's why we have the podcast. Captive audience. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you're, if you're here, if you're here in... Uh, episode whatever it is 11 10 i don't know of war and peace and it's pretty captive matt i gotta ask you though what are we reading next episode Ooh, we're very close to being done we're on uh part four book four mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's it and then after that i think we're gonna combine the epilogues and do the old epilogues in uh, one episode call it a day retire from podcasting forever <laughs> You've spent five months on War Go and live Peace. in a tent. I'm done. We deserve some peace. I'm done. As do you if you've listened to <laughs> five straight months of War and Peace. Good on you. Good on you for following this long. Mm-hmm. Thank you for being here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also deserve some peace. You deserve whatever the hell uh, Pierre is on during his death march. No kidding. <laughs> and before we let you go, we wanted to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons. Brenda, Nell Nell Cool J, Christina, Marin, JG, Banana Karenina, Margarita, Yulia, Amanda, John, Natalie, Ben, James, Elizabeth, Shannon, Blake, Amanda, Maya, Packrob, Zachary, Austin, Isaac, Brett, Caitlin, Eli, Stephanie, Alex, Yitza, Mysterious Donor Dude, Elise, Allison, Brandon, Adini, Lou, Jesse, Paige, Daniel, Darren, Daniel, Janice, Anne, Madeline, and Jeff. Podcasting isn't free, and grad school doesn't pay very well, so if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the podcast running at the rate it does now, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. 
The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. 